Good morning, Grace Point. We are so glad you're here today, especially if you're joining us for the very first time. Wherever you are in the world, we are so glad you're here and you found us on a really, really good day because today we have a guest speaker and I'm, I'm so excited to introduce him, although he really doesn't need much of an introduction. I'll, I'll give him one anyway. This morning we have Brian McLaren with us. Brian is an author. Uh, he, he's been a pastor. He's an activist, a theologian. He raises turtles. Brian is, is this incredible human being. And I have to say that in my own journey and development, Brian played a pivotal role way before I ever met him in person, way before I ever knew him. Brian was pastoring me from a distance through some of his earliest books, like The Church on the Other Side or A Generous Orthodoxy, a new kind, the new, new kind of Christian fiction series or A New Kind of Christianity, where he sort of launches his vision for a, a Christian faith of the future. All of those played, and more, played such a vital role in my own development, uh, theologically, spiritually. And in so many ways, Brian is one of the reasons I'm still a Christian. And so I, I'm just thrilled to have him here today. A couple things about his work, if you want to, um, if you're just jumping in, this is, his most recent book is called "There's a Glare: The Galapagos Islands: A Spiritual Journey." Um, and some of our own Grace Pointers actually went to the Galapagos Islands with Brian after this came out to be part of that experience. Um, so you can get that, or there's also you can pre-order his next book anywhere online where you can pre-order such things. It's called "Faith After Doubt." why your beliefs stop working, and what to do about it. And that'll come out early next year. So today, Brian um, is going to be, actually, I, I said last week I was ending our series, but actually Brian is going to conclude our series on Bible stories for grownups today. And Brian's going to talk to us about the story of Esther. And uh, I'll tell you, I, I have a sneak peek on this. I've seen this sermon, and it's absolutely profound and incredible. So I know you're going to enjoy it. I know it's going to speak to you. Thank you so much, Brian, for being here with us today. Hi, friends. Uh, my name is Brian McLaren. So glad to be with you this morning to talk to you about the biblical story of Esther. Esther is the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God. I guess that's one reason why I like Esther so much. Uh, frankly, I'm tired of so much God talk. I often think, poor God, your name gets used for everything. It's constantly being dragged through the muck. My friend Nadia Boltz-Weber suggests that uh, that's actually what the second line of the Lord's Prayer means when we say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, meaning your name has been dragged through the mud, disgraced in a hundred different ways, May your name be honored and revered as it should be. Uh, this is one of the attractions of the contemplative traditions of Christianity. In the contemplative Christian traditions, we're more modest in speaking of God and for God. We balance our God talk with reverent silence. We believe that our presence and our actions should do a lot more of the talking. In silence, we find some relief from all the, the God talk so that we can enter the God experience uh, and God participation. For all these reasons and more, I think the book of Esther has special relevance for these times. The book of Esther begins with some political intrigue in the Persian Empire, something I know that we can hardly relate to uh, these days. It's, the book starts like this. This happened in the days of Ahasuerus, 
the same Ahasuerus who ruled over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in the citadel of Susa in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his officials and ministers, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were present while he displayed the great wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and pomp of his majesty for many days, 180 days in all. Now look, I know it's really hard to imagine uh, a time when political leaders would boast of their wealth and power and all their gold-plated possessions, but that's how it was back in those ancient days. The story continues. When these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in the citadel of Susa, both great and small, a banquet lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and blue hangings tied with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and colored stones. Drinks were served in golden goblets, goblets of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Drinking was by flagons without restraint, for the king had given orders to all the officials of his palace to do as each one desired. Furthermore, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the palace of King Ahasuerus. So the king, has, uh, his popularity ratings are high. He's giving out free wine by the flagons. He's telling people exactly what they want to hear. He's giving them exactly uh, what uh, especially the rich people want. And you might think, wow, Queen Vashti gave a banquet. She must have some power uh, in this kingdom as well, a special banquet for the women. But watch what happens next. You'll see that Queen Vashti is really just a prop for the king's power. On the seventh day, when the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zathar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who attended him, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing the royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the officials her beauty, for she was fair to behold. Now, you may never have heard those names before, Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Bagtha, Zethar, and Carcass. Um, but eunuchs like these seven play very importantly in this story. You might think of it like this. In the ancient world, kings and queens were always afraid that their closest confidence might, uh, confidants might turn on them. Uh, for example, their top aides or officials might steal money since there was so much of it lying around. Or they might participate in a plot to poison or kill the king or queen since there was always so much resentment by the hordes of people who were living in squalor and hunger while the court lived in luxury and ease. Or since many kings in those days had large harems, some of their top officials might impregnate members of the harem, which would result in the king raising children who were not his own. 
So with big risks like that, many ancient monarchs took young boys and castrated them. That way, the boys couldn't marry. And they would quite literally be married to their job for their whole lives. They had nowhere else to go, which made them all the more trustworthy by the royal family. Not only that, but to have a group of demasculinized men surrounding the king and fawning over him only served to make him seem even more macho and tough. And authoritarian leaders know they need to constantly look tough. And that's where things get interesting. The story continues. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, conveyed by the eunuchs. At this, the king was enraged and his anger burned within him. Do you see what's going on here? Queen Vashti is sick and tired of being little more than a pretty prop for her husband. She decides to break from the whole patriarchal power system where men rule. And so the king does what any powerful person does. First, he gets angry. And second, he consults his lawyers. Then the king consulted the sages who knew the laws, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and custom. And those next to him were Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsena, and Memukan, the seven officials of Persia and Media, who had access to the king and sat first in the kingdom. Quote, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus conveyed by the eunuchs? So do you see what's happening here? There's a, a power pyramid here. The king is on top, the supreme alpha male, and then uh, his top beta male, so to speak. And then maybe we could say the gamma eunuch males under them. And only beneath that level would the queen have any power at all. Story continues then, Memu Khan said, in the presence of the king and the officials, not only has Queen Vashti done wrong to the king, but also to all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For this deed of the queen will be made known to all women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persian media who have heard of the queen's be behavior will rebel against the king's officials and there will be no end of contempt and wrath. Now, there is a powerful political and social insight here. The pyramids of power that seem so intimidating are actually filled with insecurity. If anyone in the chain of command breaks with protocol, the insecure potentate at the top is afraid the whole thing will crumble, and so he has to respond with crushing revenge. Otherwise, the whole system of fear and subordination will fall apart. So the king's lawyers and fixers tell him what he needs to do to expel Queen Vashti from the royal harem and find some nice, 
quiet, submissive girl to replace her. Here's their official report. If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be altered that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, vast as it is, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the officials, and the king did as Memu Khan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, declaring that every man should be the master in his own house. You see it? All kinds of diversity is now going to be reined in through the same kind of hierarchy, men over women, kings over nobles, nobles over commoners. The hierarchy will be maintained. So you might say that the Book of Esther begins with a feminist movement headed by Queen Vashti, which is then crushed brutally by the patriarchal establishment and the old order is reimposed. King Ahasuerus is really angry for a while, but then he organizes a beauty pageant. You, you can make this stuff up, people. So he can check out all the prettiest young women in the empire. After he samples the prettiest of the pretty, he elevates one young woman named Esther to fill Vashti's position. Now, Esther, it turns out, is a member of the Jewish minority in Persia. When her parents died, she was adopted by her uncle Mordecai. Knowing how prejudice worked, Mordecai counseled Esther, keep your Jewish identity a secret. And so here we have the central drama of the Esther story. Will Esther be the kind of quiet, sweet, submissive, compliant woman King Ahasuerus appreciates? And will she protect herself and her privilege at all costs in these dangerous times? Well, I won't read all of chapter two and three, but here's a quick summary. A few of King Ahasuerus's court eunuchs plan an assassination. Uh, and, and that tells us something. Behind the wealth and power and armies and patriotic holidays and banquets, Resentment levels are high in the Persian Empire. Even the eunuchs are restless. The plot of the eunuchs is discovered by Uncle Mordecai. He tells Esther and she warns the king who hangs the would-be assassins. And this, of course, raises Esther's profile even higher. And it also gives Uncle Mordecai a lot more power and confidence. One day, Uncle Mordecai meets an arrogant mid-level bureaucrat named Haman. Now, you know exactly the type of person that Haman is. He's learned how to work the system for his own advantage. He's gotten super rich by rigging and playing the game. And he constantly displays his dominance by requiring others to bow in his presence. But 
Uncle Mordecai doesn't bow to him. And that infuriates Haman so much that he decides not just to strike back for the offense, but to strike back 10 times as hard. So he hatches a plan to kill not only Mordecai, but also all the Jewish people in Persia. Now, I know it's hard to imagine a political system that gains and maintains power by uniting the majority against a beleaguered minority. But again, you just have to use your imagination. So Haman starts this political action committee that says, watch out, there's a dangerous minority group in the Persian Empire. They aren't like us. They don't follow our way of life. They don't recognize our exceptionalism and superiority. They're therefore a threat to our nation. So Haman knows how Persian politics works. And he goes to King Ahasuerus and says, King, your majesty, I'll make a huge contribution to your fund if you'll authorize your administration to kill all the Jews on a certain day. And by the way, if you kill them all, you can then take all their wealth and possessions, which will improve the GDP significantly. Now, again, I know it's hard to imagine a world where powerful people get the government to do their bidding by making huge contributions and by scapegoating and exploiting minorities. But there it is. When a rumor gets out that the king is planning a genocide, Esther is obviously terribly upset. She makes an alliance with one of the court eunuchs who becomes her contact person with Uncle Mordecai. Mordecai becomes like a hardworking journalist. He uncovers a bunch of leaked documents that prove what's going on. Again, I know it's hard to imagine leaked documents playing a key role in government affairs, but these things used to happen long, long ago and far, far away. Finally, after Uncle Mordecai discovers and proves what Haman and the king have, pl have planned, Mordecai sends Esther a message. You have to speak to the king about this plot to wipe us all out. Esther sends back a message. Uncle Mordecai, you don't understand. If I go to the king without being invited, I'll be killed. I have no rights. Even though I'm the queen, I'm really low on the dominance hierarchy here simply because, you know, I'm a woman. And the empire is a typical old boys network. Well, then Mordecai sends her this message found in Esther chapter 4, verse 13. In many ways, the, the key passage of the whole book of Esther. Do not think that in the king's palace, you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Now, I love Uncle Mordecai's wisdom here. He says, listen, Esther, if they come for the Jews, they're coming for you too. Why miss the chance to be a player in history? Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such 
a time as this. Silence would be compliance. Silence would be complicity. Don't throw away your shot. Now, I know it's almost impossible to relate to a story like this, a situation where you have some privilege, where you have a share of power, where you have a voice or maybe even a vote. And if you use your privilege and power and raise your voice, you might get in trouble. So you're just tempted to play it safe and be quiet. Well, Esther sends this reply to Uncle Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, the capital city. Hold a fast on my behalf and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. After that, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So you see what Esther's saying. I'm going to put my skin in the game. I'm going to risk everything by being a whistleblower about government corruption and wrongdoing. I'm going to engage in civil disobedience to expose this horrible crime that's being planned by our government, by top officials in our government, including the king. But look, give me three days to prepare and you fast and pray with me. I'm not sure I'm going to survive this, but I'd rather die than be just another pretty face the king uses to beautify his corrupt and violent regime. So Esther developed a, a really sophisticated multi-step plan. And you can read about it on your own in chapters five through 10 of the book of Esther. But the bottom line is this, the evil and violence that Haman planned for the Jews actually happened to him. It all backfired on him. But everything depended on two people, people who could have laid low and played it safe, but decided to take a risk. It began when Mordecai refused to bow to Haman. He refused to play the this, this submission game. He was like Rosa Parks. He decided to stop being dehumanized by a corrupt system through a symbolic act of refusing to bow, of just standing tall. He, he stood up to the system. In a way, that made things worse. But that's where Esther came in. Look, let's speak very frankly. The ugly truth is Esther was what we would call a trafficked woman. She was a sex slave forcibly taken into King Ahasuerus' harem. She had no rights. She was the kind of young woman that Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell would find and sell to powerful, corrupt men. But when she found herself in the company of the powerful, she wasn't addicted to the luxury and security they offered. She risked it all for her oppressed people. Now, you might wonder if I think this story is historical. 
I mean, perhaps there was some historical seed to the story, but to me, this story has all the marks of a cleverly structured work of fiction. But whether it's nonfiction or fiction or a mixture of the two, its three-part message is the same. And I'd like to try to articulate that three-part message as I close this morning. First, never give up. Even if liberators like Queen Vashti are crushed by arrogant, angry, insecure men, never give up. Even if the eunuchs fail at their attempt at self-liberation, never give up, even that. Even if arrogant, small-minded, big-mouthed bigots like Haman try to humiliate you and threaten you, never, ever, ever bow and give up. Because the power of dominance pyramids is always more fragile than it appears. And the bigger they are, the harder they will fall when their time comes. So don't roll over and play dead. Don't sink into the paralysis of despair. Be willing to say with Esther, if I perish, if I perish, but I'm not throwing away my shot. Second, never underestimate anyone, including yourself. I can imagine people making fun of Esther. She was just a woman just a Jew, just a member of the king's harem, just another pretty face, just an immigrant and a minority. But when her time came, she was fierce and fearless and clever. It might be good right now to interrogate that word just that is often used to minimize people. Yeah, look, I'm just a layperson. Look, I'm just a quiet citizen. Look, I'm just one person with one vote. Look, I'm just a middle-class person or I'm just a poor person. Look, I'm just a guy with a high school diploma. Look, I'm just a member of the LGBTQ community. Look, I'm just a divorcee. I'm just a teenager. I'm just a senior citizen. I'm just a recovering addict. I'm just a stay-at-home mom. I'm just a nurse. I'm just a truck driver. I'm just one person. And now, instead of shrinking and minimizing yourself with that word just, take Uncle Mordecai's question to Esther and open up the possibility, who knows? Perhaps you are who you are and you are where you are because you have a role to play in just such a time as this. I may not be Queen Vashti. I may not be a court eunuch. I may not be Haman with all his wealth and swagger, but I am who I am. And I will use what I have to join God in God's liberating work in the world. Never give up. Never underestimate anybody, including yourself. And that brings me to one final lesson. Never assume God is where the most God talk is. Instead, assume God is where the quiet behind the scenes struggle for human liberation, human dignity, and human goodness is unfolding often behind the scenes. That lesson is very important to me. I grew up in a context of endless 
God talk. We had arguments about who had the right words and who had the right words about the right words. I, I grew up in the Christian tradition that argued about God talk while lands were being stolen from the native peoples and never took notice. That argued about God talk while lives were being stolen through slavery, never woke up to that reality. I grew up in the context where while the dignity of millions of people is being stolen through white supremacy and male supremacy and the supremacy of money, people didn't notice because we were all so involved in our pious God talk. I grew up seeing Jesus as a ticket to heaven, ignoring his Jewish identity as a man dedicated to human liberation, which by the way, is the real meaning of the word salvation. I have some rabbi friends who in 2002 started an organization of rabbis for social justice. The group is called Trua, which is the Hebrew word for the call of the shofar or the ram's horn. They're calling Jews to stand up for the tradition of Jewish social justice, of human rights, and human dignity for all people. One of their mottos is resisting tyrants since Pharaoh. Whether it was Pharaoh in Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, Ahasuerus in Persia, or Caesar Augustus in the time of Jesus, Jews have seen God active wherever people are struggling to be free. In that vision, every person, no matter their race, religion, class, group, gender, is made in the image of God, no exceptions. That's a revolutionary thought, and it's every bit as revolutionary today as, it is ever, as it's ever been. In a time when we're putting children in cages, when there's a resurgence of hate crimes against Muslims and Jews, against transgendered women, against blacks against anyone who doesn't fit in with somebody's standard of who's acceptable to say that every person has divine dignity that's a revolutionary statement there are many even today who claim that god is to be associated with those in power even if they're arrogant corrupt cruel and self-seeking but no this radical jewish vision dares us to see God working for change, working for justice, working for equality, working for the royal dignity, not just of the king or the queen, but of every person everywhere. Through the most unlikely of people, including a young orphaned woman of a minority group who had been made a sex slave in the king's harem. So my brothers and sisters, I leave you with this blessing. First, may you live into the blessing of who knows and perhaps. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to exactly where you are right now for just such a time as this because there are people you can help and things you can see and work you can do from right where you are that fits in with the larger plan for human liberation and peace. Second, 
may you live into the blessing of if. If I perish, I perish, Esther said, but I will not remain silent and play it safe. May you live into the blessing of if. And third, may you live into the blessing of never. Never give up. Never underestimate anyone, including yourself. And never doubt that God is active, even if God is not mentioned, that God is active in the struggle for human liberation, dignity, goodness, and peace. Amen. I don't know justice. And I haven't met peace. I mean, I was told that I met her. I was told that she's been around here, but I think they must be confused. Maybe they're confused with silence. In fact, I asked her, I asked Silence, and she said, nah, young man, peace don't live around here. She said she don't even look like that queen. She sings, carries a big sword, and her smile is clean. Her hair is natural, and her rings like bells. And on heels, she sits a little taller than Justice. I don't know Justice. And I haven't met peace and Justice. She said Justice's arms are long and his embrace is strong and you can hear every step he takes. No, not every step he asks for, every step he takes. No, not every step that is given, every step he takes. She said, Royce, go back and tell them they got me wrong. I am silent. And my cousins are dumb, hush, mute, shut up, settle, sit still. Royce, you know them. I don't know justice, and I haven't met peace. I've been waiting for them to pull up and want a cord, but I can't wait much longer. These arms ain't much stronger, but they strong though. Shoot, I'll pat myself on the back. Look in the mirror, don't know how to act. I'm black, I'm black, I'm black. Black. What does that mean anyway? A word full of culture, but void of identity. That's why I gotta love my enemy. Now don't get me wrong, I haven't always walked around proud, but even when I didn't, I put my fist up and I said it loud. I'm black. I don't know justice, and I haven't met peace. And I can't help but wonder how it feels if I could say it with peace and justice, whipping in that one accord. I want to know it. I want to see them, I want to talk to them. I want to kick it with the same folks they roll with, like freedom and liberty and opera, opera, opportunity. I want to breathe, not inhale, not inhale, but inhale, exhale, inhale. Now you've said it, and I'm flattered. You even use the hashtag Black Lives Matter. But when Yeshua left the mini for the one, I knew my black life mattered before the hashtag was relevant. My skin is heaven's. But I don't know justice. And I haven't met peace. I wish I could walk away from this microphone telling you that I met him, but I can't. I believe in a redeemer. I believe in a God of creation. And I can't. 
Because I don't know justice. And I haven't met peace. But I tell you this. I'ma keep looking. I'ma keep pushing. I'ma keep shaking. I'ma keep talking. I'ma keep yelling. I'ma keep learning. I'ma keep voting. I'ma keep engaging. And I'ma keep growing. Because I'm going to meet him. And when I meet him, I'ma take him to my school. I'ma bring him to my home. I'ma bring him to my job. I'ma bring him to my hood. I'ma bring him to my friends. I'ma bring him to my father. I'ma bring him to my mother. I'ma bring him to my sister. I'ma bring him to my brother. I'ma bring him to the jail. Inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. Because I don't know justice. And I haven't met peace. We ain't got to die no more. Love is what we're fighting for. I know that I'm worth more than a t-shirt. We ain't got to die no more. Love is what we're fighting for. I know that I'm worth more than t-shirt. 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 Oh, right. Grace Point. It has been an incredible, incredible morning. Um, another incredible gathering. We're so glad that you were here to be a part of it. Um, and I just want to say last Sunday, those of us who were able to meet in the park in Nashville, for those of us who are local, um, it was so good to get to see all of you and to get to, even from a distance, just to see your face or, or half your faces uh, and just to be in the same space with you is wonderful. I want you to know that we are regularly having conversations about what what looks safe and what looks like we can continue to do. I hope to have more news about maybe other opportunities that are coming up, um, perhaps even next Sunday, but we're going to do our best. Um, we're, tr we're trying to make sure we follow all the precautions and all the, the advice and, and, and take science seriously and, and take safety seriously. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll have more information on that as soon as we can. Thank you so much for being here. Look forward to um, seeing you again, hopefully Wednesday night, next Sunday. We hope you'll be back. We love you, Grace Point. Grace and peace be with you.